Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Fried Green Tomatoes. Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe was written by Fanny Flagg and published in 1987. And the film adaptation, which came out in 1991, was directed by John Avnet. This is a patron-requested episode. Our lovely patron, Rhea, asked us to do this episode. Thank you for suggesting this, Rhea. And we will read Rhea's thoughts at the end of the episode on this book and movie combo. Yeah, I was really excited about this because I was slightly aware of the film. I didn't know it was based on a book, but slightly aware of the film and kind of had this idea of like, oh, like an old-timey, southern, charming kind of story, you know what I mean? And then... You described it to me in a very different way. <laughs> if you know, you know. If you know, you know. <laughs> I was and like, by the end of this episode, you will you, know. You will know. And I was just like, wait, that's what it's about? <laughs> now, to be fair, I wasn't totally wrong in my assessment. No. There's, there's just a lot more to it than that. Yeah, this is a really rich book. And I kind of want to talk up top about the structure of it because – It really, like, we have the frame narrative that the movie follows, which is of Evelyn Couch and Ninny Threadgood, and the two of them kind of talking at this nursing home. And Ninny is telling the story of, like, oh, I grew up in this town. These are all the characters. This is what happened. These are all the people. So in that way, it's similar to the movie. But in the book, she tells it out of order. Yes. And I love that about the book because, like, She will just start because it's kind of just like something will remind her of something from the past. It's very natural. Yes. And she's like telling this story and then she'll just kind of drop details like, oh, and uh, Ruth and Iggy's son. And you're just like, wait, they they had a kid? What? But like that doesn't get addressed for like another 20 pages or something, right? Yeah, it jumps around a lot in time. And then we also get in the book these news bulletins. One of them is called the Weems Weekly. (laughs) Yes. And it's the local whistle stop news bulletin where Dot Weems kind of writes her weekly editorial about what's going on in the town. I'll read one of them uh, later on in the episode. But we have like other news bulletins from Birmingham, Alabama, which is close by. And we also have kind of different characters' perspectives coming in as well. So the book really... Gives you a lot of material. It's kind of this like sprawling epic that just like takes you through the decades of like the people in a small town, but then where they end up from that small town and what happens to the town and then like modern day. And I mean, it's really a a grand kind of story, right? Yeah. And I mean, we're going to do our best to, you know, cover it as as well as we can. I mean, the, the novel is just so rich. There's no way we can really mention every single thing, even though we might like to. Um, The movie definitely slims it down. It keeps the narrative focused on the two women in each time, right? In the past, we have Ruth and Iggy, and in the present, we have uh, Evelyn and Ninny, and so kind of focuses the narrative a bit more. Yeah, and we're also going to go with kind of the movie's chronological order of events, because we think it'll just be easier to discuss. Yeah. But I do like how the book shuffles it around a lot and kind of like leaves you thinking like, wait, what's this? Like, does this thing happen? Like, what's going on now, right? But like, there's enough context clues that you're able to follow the story pretty well. Yeah, let's start with um, the frame narrative, which is Evelyn Couch and Ninny Threadgood. So Evelyn and her husband, Ed, are going to a nursing home. In the book, they're visiting Ed's mother. And in the movie, they're visiting Ed's aunt. Yes, both versions of the relative hate 
Evelyn and <laughs> Evelyn just like doesn't want to be around on these, you know, weekly visits. So she hangs out in the visitors lounge. The visitors lounge that. Yeah, thank you. And this is where she meets Ninny. And Ninny just like immediately corners her <laughs> and just starts rambling. Right? I love in the movie where she's like, they took my gallstones out. <laughs> And poor From, Evelyn like, across the room. is like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> and she just kind of like walks over and starts like telling her like, just as, and, and in the book, you kind of get chapters that are like this, that are just mostly Ninny telling a story, just like from her perspective, right? Yeah. And in the film, this is kind of what leads us into the story of Whistle Stop and uh, Ruth and Iggy. Mm-hmm. And a little bit about um, Evelyn is like she and her husband are middle aged at this point. Their kids are grown up. And Evelyn is really kind of struggling at this time in her life. She doesn't really know what her purpose is, what her life has been for. She's kind of unhappy in her marriage to Ed and is going to kind of like some, you know, marriage helping classes. Is She's dieting. She's really like kind of trying to figure out like something that will fix her and fix her life. I think she's at a very specific point in life. I think for people, but probably women even specifically. And I love the movie kept this quote from the book where she's like, I'm too old to be young and too young to be old. Yeah. She's kind of at this weird nebulous midpoint in her life where she's kind of like trying to like figure out some kind of purpose for herself. Like her kids, does she have kids in the movie? Yeah. Okay. I think the son at least. Yeah. Her kids are kind of grown and are out of the house and she's kind of left like figuring out what to do with herself. Right. Uh, yeah. She tries out different things and I love <laughs> there, there's a, um, Different organizations she tries. She tries kind of a feminist group and is scared away when they are going to look at their own vaginas with mirrors, <laughs> which is great. And there's a line in the book that I loved where she says, so there she was, too bored for Tupperware parties and too scared to look at her own vagina. <laughs> <laughs> there's just one chapter in the book dedicated to kind of this feeling that she has. And she even talks about her husband, Ed, at one point, too, which was interesting, where she said, Ed was no help. Lately, he had he had started acting more and more like his daddy, trying to behave like he thought the man of the house should. And like kind of just him being more closed off. And I don't know, there's just like so much interesting insight to her life and even like Ed and her kind of like relationship with him at, at this point. Like it's a really good chapter and just a good portion of the book. Yeah, I think there's a line later where she says it felt like both of them were playing a role. Yes. Right? Yeah. That they're kind of... They don't really know what they really want, but they're just following what society has told them, and it's not really fulfilling for either of them. So Ninny is telling Evelyn the story, and Ninny is there at the nursing home because she has a friend, Mrs. Otis, who's there, and she's <laughs> yes. there to, like, keep her company, basically. This was so – so I thought I had this figured out, right? She's like, oh, I'm only visiting, right? But I'm going to go home soon. I'm like, she's crazy. She's she's like, she's in denial. Yeah, she's, she's a woman that has to be in a nursing home. And she's like, I'm going to go home someday. And everyone's yeah. like, no, you're not. And there's things in the book where like a chapter will end with Evelyn being like, suddenly I noticed Ninny was wearing her dress inside out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of this erratic behavior. I don't know if this was like intentionally a red herring that we were supposed to think that she was maybe in denial but she's actually not. Yeah, which, she does eventually go home. Which, which was kind of shocking to me. I was I like, know. oh, <laughs> I thought I had this all figured out. Yeah, but the two of them kind of begin this friendship and Evelyn starts visiting her basically every week. And the story starts to unfold about Whistle Stop and the community. And let's get into it. Yes. So 
uh, as the title of the book tells us, a lot of this story takes place in Whistle Stop, Alabama, which is a kind of a small town train stop, and it's near Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. And it's kind of a, uh, it's not like a thriving community, but it feels like a, like a substantial small town, right? Mm-hmm. And the kind of main family that were that a lot of the characters come from is the Threadgood family. Yeah, there's a lot of kids. The parents are really well known and well loved by the whole town. And Ninny actually was adopted by the family or kind of like an honorary member of their family, kind of raised by them. Yeah, kind of taken in by them. And yeah. she ended up marrying one of the brothers, Cleo, later on. So she became like officially a Threadgood you know, by name, even though she wasn't, I don't, they probably didn't adopt her. <laughs> it might've been weird if they had, and then she married yeah, Cleo. It was probably more like they, an honorary adoption yeah, type thing. Yeah. She, she was kind of like half raised by them. But um, we also have Buddy, who is one of the more charismatic thread goods. And he has a very special relationship with his younger sister, Iggy. The two of them are really close. They're definitely like um, a similar character, I'd say. Yeah. They have a similar personality. They're kind of wild, charming, right? Funny. But unfortunately, Buddy gets hit by a train. Yes. How it was described in the book was odd. Like he was kind of showboating for a girl wearing a hat and just wasn't paying attention and got hit by the train. And yeah. I'm like, how does that happen? <laughs> uh, instead, although I, I know it does happen in real life. I remember like, people taking photos on Instagram on train tracks became like a big thing because people yeah. were getting hit by trains. So it can happen. <laughs> the movie changes it. So like he just gets his foot kind of caught in the railroad ties yeah. and then gets hit by the train. And very sadly, right in front of Iggy yeah. uh, in the film. Well, and it's also different in the film because in the movie, Buddy and Ruth are kind of dating at this point. Or at least they're kind of into each other, right? Yes. And we have a little, like, young Iggy kind of tagging along. In the book, Ruth is not here at this time, and Buddy has a different girlfriend. So, you know, this is really traumatic for Iggy's character. She was already kind of a tomboy, and we have a really funny scene in the movie of her, like, in a dress with scraped up knees and hating it, and then eventually going to this wedding in a suit instead, right? Yeah, which is from the book, too, which was a very funny situation yeah she's just kind of like really unruly the mother can't do a thing about her yeah and she's just like her own person right in a really great way yeah and with buddy's death she gets even more wild like she kind of takes off on her own a lot um big george who is a black man affiliated with the family like you know kind of checks in on her a lot but she just is kind of going wild throughout her adolescence yeah we get a time jump here in the movie adina and they, they made a decision that I don't like, which is that they kept the same actress who played Ruth, right? When yeah. she was younger. Yeah. But they changed the actress from... I know. I'm like, how old was Ruth supposed to be yeah. in that Buddy scene? Yeah. That's why it makes no sense to have her and Buddy be dating, because I'm like, how old is she now? Well, like, it just makes it weird because suddenly Iggy goes from being like, what, 10 years old to suddenly being like maybe 16 but like a 20 something year old actress pretending to be 16 (laughs) whereas ruth now who was supposed to be older by a good bit is now looks younger than iggy does yeah like age them both up change both actors it's weird when you only change the one i agree and in the book they're only supposed to be about five or six years apart yes in age um in the book the first time that ruth shows up 
Iggy's about 15 or 16 and Ruth is like 21-ish. And the two of them strike up a friendship immediately. The movie kind of implies that uh, Iggy's mom brought Ruth there to try and like tame Iggy. Yeah, which is weird. So like the dynamic is very different. In the book, when Ruth is staying with them, Iggy is like obsessed Obsessed. with her. (laughs) Yeah, she just like can't like stay away from Ruth and is like doing things to kind of like show off in front of Ruth. And it's so funny because the mom is like, now children, like Iggy has a crush. So like nobody make fun of her. Like it's very obvious what's going on. Yeah. Uh, Like obvious to everyone. Right. And it's kind of like almost a joke for everyone. Like everyone knows the situation. Whereas in the film, when Ruth comes back, she's like the one kind of like pursuing Iggy. Yeah. And Iggy is kind of like brushing her off for a while. And Ruth is like, oh, you shouldn't be out here near the river gambling. Like, come back to your family. They're worried about you. It's kind of like at first they don't like each other, but then they like become friends. You know? Yeah, yeah. We get a really uh, significant scene between the two of them, though, where Iggy kind of takes Ruth out on a picnic and she kind of has this whole thing like set up where there's a tree nearby <laughs> that she approaches and it's just like swarming with bees. But she kind of just walks right up, reaches her hand in and like takes out some honey. Mm-hmm. I thought this scene was done so well in the Oh film. my God, it's amazing. And I found out the actress actually did it playing Iggy because I guess the uh, stunt double had quit <laughs> very unexpectedly. And so... Yeah, Iggy was just wow. like, I, I guess I'll do it. I can't it. imagine doing that. I mean, you can tell it's actually that actress covered in bees, mm-hmm. right? I mean, special effects weren't that good back then. Like, they had to just do it, right? No, it's an amazing scene. And this is a moment where it feels like the two of them are coming together. And I think the movie, like, it feels significant, but the book really, like, kind of impresses on you yes. how important it is. And I just want to read a portion from the book here. So... It's funny. Most people can be around someone and then gradually begin to love them and never know exactly when it happened. But Ruth knew the very second it happened to her. When Iggy had grinned at her and tried to hand her that jar of honey, all these feelings that she had been trying to hold back came flooding through her. And it was at that second in time that she knew she loved Iggy with all her heart. That's why she had been crying that day. She had never felt that way before and she knew she probably would never feel that way again. And now, a month later, it was because she loved her so much that she had to leave. Iggy was a 16-year-old kid with a crush and couldn't possibly understand what she was saying. She had no idea when she was begging Ruth to stay and live with them what she was asking, but Ruth knew and she realized she had to get away. She had no idea why she wanted to be with Iggy more than anybody else on this earth, but she did. She had prayed about it, she had cried about it, but there was no answer except to go back home and marry Frank Bennett, the young man she was engaged to marry, and to try to be a good wife and mother. Ruth was sure that no matter what Iggy said, she would get over her crush and get on with her life. Ruth was doing the only thing she could do. So, like, the book is very explicit. Yes. Here that Ruth and Iggy are in love with each other. Yeah. They are in love. I also think the book is able to play off the age difference well here because, like, they're not that far apart in age, but a significant... Like, that's a significant time in your life, right? Where the difference between a 16-year-old and a 21 or 22-year-old, that's like huge. Yeah, that's pretty big, right? And for Ruth to be like, she just has a crush. Like, she doesn't know what she's saying, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, that age difference doesn't feel like it really exists in the film. No. Uh, Yeah, so in the film, uh, we also get a scene... A birthday scene. Yeah. That I really like. Where it's good. Where Iggy kind of surprises Ruth on her birthday. 
down by the uh, by the river where the rowdy crowd is, <laughs> and they they drink and they play baseball, which is fun, and poker, and poker, and then the two of them kind of like go to the river and are kind of like swimming together mm-hmm. at, at night, and it's like it feels romantic in a way, yeah. And of course, Ruth says like, "Oh, too bad I have to go home and marry and get married the man I am engaged <laughs> to," and she's like. Oh, you're what? engaged. That's cool. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. And Ruth is like, yep. And then gives her like a peck on the cheek. Yes. Which obviously there's a lot of like tension to that little kiss, right? Like visually even, like you can tell with the characters there's something there. Yeah. But like that's it. And then Ruth just goes home after that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I read in the book, you know, Ruth feels like she has to go and marry her fiance. Um, there's a lot at play. Like, her mother is kind of sick and she needs someone that can, like, care for them, right? She needs that security, especially back then, right? It's so hard to be a woman on your own. And also she feels like she can't she can't tie herself to Iggy and make Iggy, like, commit to her, like you said, because she's so young. Yeah. And so she does go and she marries Frank Bennett. In the book, though, it's pretty dramatic between Ruth and Iggy when, when Ruth leaves. I really love this depiction of Iggy, though, in the book. Like, first of all, that she's so infatuated with Ruth, right? Like, she's really pursuing Ruth. And that Ruth is kind of being, like, swept up in it. But then when she has to leave, like, Iggy is, like, throwing a tantrum. Which, once again, kind of shows her age, but also her character. She's, like, literally smashing and destroying everything in her room. Yeah. And tells Ruth, like, get out of here. I hate you. I hope you die. Like, really, like, this very passionate... An angry response. Mm-hmm. So they part on very bad terms in a way in the book. For sure. Uh, let's take a little break and talk about some of the side characters in the story. And we do have some of these characters in the movie, but this is really like a book thing. What I love about this book is it is kind of the story of this Threadgood family, right? But it's also the story of the a black family that's very closely tied to them. And honestly, you can make a case that they are part of Ruth and Iggy's family, right? Yes. They're just such a significant um, presence in the book. So we have Sipsy, who kind of help helps to raise the Threadgood children. Um, and she actually ends up adopting a baby boy that was left at the train station. Oh, my God. I even forgot about that part. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that so sweet? Well, it is. Well, like, early on in the book, you're introduced to so many characters and, like, so many things that, like, you know, at one point you find out about a character's mother, and I remembered that, but I couldn't remember what character <laughs> whose mother that was, right? Because, like, you're just being given so many names. And it kind of made me want to immediately go back and reread this book. Because I know. I'm like, I'm sure there's things I've forgotten, like the fact that Sipsy just, like, went to the train and, like, took uh, Big George when he was a baby. Yeah. And that he wasn't. Because I was actually even thinking, I'm like, wait, Sipsy, was Sipsy's, was Sipsy married at any point that we know of or, like, had a husband? But, no. like, no, she just took Big George in from a baby and raised him. Yeah. And then, you know, Big George gets married and his wife's name is Anzal. And then they have kids. They have four children. They have twins, Jasper and Artis. They have a girl that they nickname Naughty Bird. Naughty Bird, yeah. And then they have another son who is named Wonderful Counselor. And I think they call him, like, Willie Boy Willie Boy, that was it. They call him Willie yeah. Boy. Yeah. Because I forgot that they named him Wonderful Counselor. 
<laughs> um, but yeah, just like this family, this generation, right? And like we find out later that Sipsy and Anzel um, cook at the Whistle Stop Cafe, which Ruth and Iggy own. And we like hear a lot about the cafe, you know, especially because the book is going, you know, not in order, right? So we're hearing yes. a lot about these characters at different times. But um, yeah, I just really like that the book kind of gives us a little bit of a history of these characters because they are so important. And the book actually spends a lot of time talking about the twins, um, Asper or Jasper and Artis. Asper. <laughs> Asper and Jardis. Um, but mostly artists and kind of like he ends up when he's grown heading over to Birmingham and living there. And he lives in the black community there, which is called Slagtown. Yeah, I loved the first description of Slagtown because I think in Alabama at this time, and especially like the kind of story that's being told, like your first impressions of the black characters are like, okay, they work with the white main characters, right? And like, oh, the white main characters love them, right? Oh, they're like family, but they still kind of like fit this very conventional role that yeah. you're familiar with, like with stories like this. But then Artist goes to Slagtown and it's just a whole chapter almost dedicated to the black community and neighborhood of Slagtown and like the art and music and culture of it and that like the black people that live there even if they like work as like a maid or someone who shines shoes or something in that community at night they're like thriving right yeah like, they, they are wearing like really nice uh clothing and like seeing like great performances and music and like when artist goes there he is just like oh my god this is my place like i have to come here yeah and for me this was a huge turning point in the book as like as far as i'm like okay i feel like this is actually going to be talking about black characters as like individuals and characters and like their role isn't just solely tied to the white characters of no, the story. No, yeah, you're right. It's not just like the supporting role. It is kind of interested in the in the black experience at this time. And I think talking about black communities, right? Because like when you think of a thriving black community, you think, oh, Harlem in New York City. But so many big cities in the North and South had black districts, mainly because of segregation, right? They had yeah. to be separate. But those communities became like a thriving and rich and like wonderful place to be. I mean, there was like poverty and there was tragedy and there was struggle, but there was also like a lot of art and culture. And even in Pittsburgh, like yeah. there was a really thriving black community at this time. Um, so I loved getting to see this and kind of seeing artists and his love for the city come through here. Yeah. There's also, um, like, we talked about the Weems Weekly, yes. right? <laughs> the Weems Weekly is so funny. And, like, it introduces you to so many characters. Sometimes that only pop up in the Weems Weekly. They're not even characters in any larger story, but they just kind of keep getting mentioned. There's, like, a woman with a cat. <laughs> and there's, like, a, a hair salon that gets mentioned a lot. And, like, the woman's husband is constantly brought up as, like, her, her other half. And he's constantly fucking up. And it's, like, just kind of... <laughs> like a separate side plot it really gives you an idea of the town and i think it really fills in that feeling of knowing that it, this is a town this is a community here are the people in it you can kind of like follow them a little bit right i just want to read one of the weems weekly there's so many of them yes right uh so here's one weems weekly <laughs> the whistle stop baptist church Church's Ladies Bible Study Group met Wednesday morning last week at the home of Mrs. Vesta Attic and discussed ways to study the Bible and make it easier to understand. 
Noah and the Ark was a topic, and why did Noah let two snakes on the boat when he had a chance to get rid of them once and for all? If anyone has an explanation, they are asked to please call Vesta. (laughs) Saturday, Ruth and Iggy had a birthday party for their little boy. All the guests enjoyed pinning the tail on the donkey and eating cake and ice cream, and they all got glass locomotives with little candy pellets inside. Iggy said they are going to the picture show again Friday night if anyone wants to go. Speaking of shows, the other night when I came in from the post office, my other half was in such a hurry to get over to Birmingham and get to the picture show before the prices changed that he grabbed his coat and ran out the door with me. And then when we got there, all he did was complain about his back hurting him so bad all throughout the movie. When we got home, he found out he had been in such a rush, he had forgotten to take the coat hanger out of his coat. (laughs) I told him the next time we'd pay the extra money for the ticket because he ruined the picture for me jerking around in his seat. By the way, does anybody out there want to buy a slightly used husband? Cheap? Just kidding, Wilbur. Dot weems. (laughs) It's like... It's so good. It's like tiny nuggets of small town news and then just like her own shit that's going on. Yeah. But like it adds such a richness to not only the town, but just like the world and characters in general. And I think like Fanny Flagg does such a good job in this story of like creating such like a rich world. And honestly, you know who it reminds me of? And this is like in such a different way, but it reminds me of Stephen King. Mm, Yeah. In certain books like it or Salem's lot, he paints such a detailed picture of like a small town. Yes. And like, this is clearly in more of a, um, a comedic way, but like still that like level of depth and detail of like, oh, this- interpersonal relationships. Yeah. Like, oh, this person who worked at the cafe was sleeping with like the sheriff and the sheriff was doing this thing. And like, oh, there's a lumber mill and like all these people worked there and just like attention to detail that makes it feel so lived in and real. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting parallel. So getting back to uh, the plot line of Iggy and Ruth, Ruth has left and actually got married, which yeah. shocked me. <laughs> You're he, like, she won't do it. Yeah, well, you know they end up together uh, because of kind of like the the disjointed way the story's told, especially in the book. But uh, yeah, Ruth goes back to Georgia and gets married. And Iggy in the book is definitely stalking her more. Yeah. She kind of goes to the town and starts asking around about like Frank, the man that she married and like, oh, is he a good guy? And like, what's going on with there? And she even like kind of stalks the wedding as well. And yeah, just kind of can't quite leave it alone. But at a certain point, I think she kind of is like, I have to like stop doing this. <laughs> yeah. Um. So some years go by, right? But then at some point, Iggy figures out that Ruth is being abused by her husband. It's a little bit different in um, the book and the movie. In the movie, she just shows up at Ruth's house and talks to her and Ruth see, er, sees Ruth with a black eye. Um, in the book, she ends up talking to someone at like the general store in the town and someone tells her straight out that Frank is abusing his wife. Obviously, people are doing nothing about it, right, yeah. at the time. We also, like in the book, the book straight up tells us and gives us a little bit of Frank's perspective Or, like, at least a little bit about him, which is not great. He's literally the worst type of person. He is a villain. He targets black women to beat and rape and abuse, and he does the same thing to his wife. It's just awful. Yeah, I I kind of like the more specific depiction, though, in the book, because... To a lot of people in the community, he's like an upstanding citizen. Like, a lot of people have this depiction of him or this idea of him being like, oh, a really good buttoned up young man, right? Which is partly why Ruth, I think, marries him. Yeah. Whereas in the film, it's like, 
did she not know he was a piece of shit? Yeah. Right? Like, you know, he's such a villain in both versions, but in the film, it feels like Ruth should have known or like, you don't get enough reason why Ruth marries him, I don't think. Yeah. And the book also talks about her mom, right? And yes. her obligation to take care of her mom and her dad has passed away already. Um, So we have that going on. And eventually Ruth is leaving. Is, is ready to leave Frank. Um, and the reason that this happens is because her mom dies. And in the book, actually, the mom on her deathbed tells Ruth, get out, like, leave him. He's the devil. Yes, he's, <laughs> he's the devil. I'm going to die now. So <laughs> so you get out. Get out, yeah. Yeah. And so Ruth sends kind of a cryptic passage from the Bible to Iggy. And Iggy interprets this as like, okay, I got to get go get her. Yeah, so this is actually from the Book of Ruth, which is really interesting. And I've actually heard people interpret the Book of Ruth as a queer story. Really? Which is fascinating to me because the story is supposed to be about a woman and her mother-in-law, right? Okay. Um, I know nothing about that. The Book of Ruth, by the well, way. Well, my middle name is Ruth, actually, so. That, that I didn't know. <laughs> but to the audience, yes. Um, so I know a little bit about the story. Um, and so Ruth, Ruth in the, in the Bible, her husband dies. So her mother-in-law's son has passed away. And the two of them end up going back to the mom's hometown, basically. And Ruth tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, she says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Like, don't separate me from you. Like, Interesting. It's, and actually, people use this passage for wedding vows a lot. So, like, it's interesting because you can kind of interpret it as romantic. I mean, possibly Ruth in the original story, like, was saying this because she did love her mother-in-law, right? Yeah. It could happen. <laughs> it could. Um, but also, it's just this kind of vow of fidelity and family and commitment to each other um, that's really interesting. And I, I kind of like Ruth sending this passage to Iggy because she's saying, like, I, I want to be with you and I will stick with you, like, no matter what. I'm glad, like, you and Iggy would have gotten the right thing from this passage because <laughs> if I had received this and read it, I would have been like, I don't know what this means exactly. <laughs> I'm just going to go get her just to, just to be <laughs> just safe. Just to be safe. Yeah. Which they do. Yes. So Iggy goes with one of her brothers and Big George. And I love that Ruth is already there with her bags packed and she's like, I'm ready to go. Yeah. In the film, she already knows that she's pregnant, which I think is part of her reason for leaving in the film. In the book, she doesn't even know she's pregnant yet. Mm -hmm. So they load up her stuff. And at one point, Frank shows up and is like, what the fuck is going on? I actually really like the way this scene was shot in the film. It's very, like, physical and violent. Iggy jumps on his back, and we get a great... It's, it's So it's called a snorry cam, okay? <laughs> that is where the camera is physically attached to an actor, mm. usually pointing at them. So the actor is kind of, like, solid in the frame, and the background is kind of, like, moving around. Interesting. So Iggy jumps on his back, and they're, like, spinning around with a snorry cam, which is a great shot. <laughs> and... He's being, like, super violent and shitty in the film specifically and even, like, kicks Ruth down the steps. Yeah. Which we're told that he does. He had did at one point in the book, so it's, like, book accurate. Mm -hmm. But they kind of threaten <laughs> they threaten him with Big George, who's standing there with a knife. Yeah. And they're like, he's crazy. 
Like, don't don't fuck with him. He's crazy. Yeah. In the book, they have, like, four men with them as well as Big George. Yeah. Like, they really are kind of not taking any chances, I think, with bringing Ruth home. I love the detail in the movie where Ruth throws her wedding ring out the car. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was, I also liked that. I love the line, too. In both versions, when Frank shows up, he's like, what's going on? And Iggy's like, I think your wife's leaving you, sir. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so, you know, Ruth comes back with Iggy. And we don't get this in the movie at all. But in the book, we have this whole kind of section where the two of them are making basically vows to each other. Yes. And it's really sweet because Iggy's parents, who, you know, had watched over Ruth for a time when she lived with them. At first, they're like, okay, we're going to support her. We're not going to put pressure on her to stay. You know, like, she's her own woman. She can make her decisions. And then as soon as they see her, they're like, we're never going to let you go again. We're so sorry. (laughs) And, like, are just, they're so caring and loving. And they know how Iggy feels. And, like, everyone knows, right? And they kind of have a conversation with Ruth and Iggy. And Ruth is essentially like, I never should have gone and I'm committed to Iggy. Like, I want to stay with her. Yeah, and I'm going to do do right by her and be with her and not leave her. And then, you know, Ruth ends up having her baby, right? And Iggy's there for her. And after the baby's born, Iggy's father sits her down and is like, listen, Iggy, you have to provide for Ruth and a baby now. Yeah. Like, you got to kind of figure your shit out. Here's some money. Figure something out. Iggy and Ruth decide to open up a cafe. And this is kind of like how they get their life going. Yeah, I just it's so heartwarming and great in the book. Like the queerness of it is right there. Like they are in a romantic relationship together. Right. And they are going to like raise this child as their own. They literally say when this baby who they name Buddy Jr. is born in the book, they're like, oh, my God, Iggy, he has your hair. (laughs) I know. Like, they're literally like, the, and, and, and throughout the, the bulletins, like the one I read, they refer to Buddy Jr. as Ruth and Iggy's child. Yes. Like, it's their son. Um, It's very much like, this is their kid together. And like, the family, like, is just like, yep, this is how it is. I mean, there's a good chance they knew Iggy was queer, probably for like a long time now. <laughs> but like... They're just so accepting and they're like, hey, this is like great. Like they found each other and like we just want them to be happy. Yeah, it's interesting because it's not overt, right? It doesn't say like, oh, yes, they are in a relationship. They are married. They are having sex. Like that's not how it is. It's more like, oh, they are together. They are partners. They are in love. Like that's kind of the, the idea of it. Yeah, but like also it would be almost impossible to read this and not understand that they are like a couple like a romantic absolutely it is odd though because i love this aspect of the book that like everyone's just so accepting of it and yet as the book kept going like they never face any adversity like no one in the town gives a shit like everyone's just like oh that's ruth and iggy like that's fine and like you have like huge racists you have like the kkk in this town and bigots but like nobody even mentions it And at a certain point, I felt like I was being gaslit, where I'm like, the town understands, right? The town knows that they're gay, right? Do they not know? Like, are they, do they think they're just friends? Like, am I crazy right now? Like, they are. Do they know about gay sex? (laughs) (laughs) Like, it is 
weird. Like, I'm kind of glad that it wasn't, like, a huge conflict that they had to, like, overcome with the town. Like, in one way, it's very sweet. But in another way, it's so not talked about to the <laughs> point where I started to, like, feel like I was crazy a little bit. Yeah, and then you have the movie, which is like, oh, and then they were best friends. The movie just glosses over all of this, right? Like, obviously, the subtext is there, but it's subtext. Yeah. Whereas in the book, it's... It's text. It's, it's text. It's, it's plot. Text. <laughs> it's canon. Like, it's there, right? Whereas in the film, you kind of have to, like, look for it. And I've read that, like, uh, Fanny Flagg, the author, who also helped to uh, co-write the script... Who is a lesbian. Who is, yes. And the actresses were all in support of this being ov- an overt queer relationship. And then the director and the producers were like... Mm, I think we're going to make it more subtle than that. Men. Men. And that's just very disappointing. It really is. And I know this was, you know, made in the 90s and, but like, come on. I know. Like, he, there's a random food fight later in the film between Ruth and Iggy in the cafe, which was kind of an odd scene to begin with. Yeah, it's kind of horny. It, It is, but like, I don't know. It's also just uncomfortable. And then there's like a man that comes in also. And I'm like, why is he here? Yeah, Grady was just there during the food fight. And then the director later had the balls to be like, oh, yeah, this is like a uh, metaphor for their like actual like Like, sexual relationship, (laughs) which is funny because I thought the B scene between them earlier was way more of like a metaphor for their like queerness. Yeah. Than like this scene was this scene just felt like a weird Food fight. It was very odd, (laughs) especially bringing a man into the scene. I like I know. And it was just I don't know. I think I just maybe it's like a a pet peeve, but like food fights in movies. I'm always just like, who would do this? Yeah. This is so wasteful. Yeah. This is like. Then you have to clean it up. This is the depression. And they're just like, I'm going (laughs) to smash berries in your face and waste flour. (laughs) Yeah. So relatable. Oh, yeah. So speaking of the depression. (laughs) (laughs) Um, they set up the cafe, right? They have the cafe going and they are selling to everybody, right? They are selling food to black folks and they have to do it out the back door because of segregation at the time, right? Jim Crow laws. And they are selling to hobos and in fact, not selling. They're just giving food to hobos. They'll, like, give, like, these homeless people, like, a chore. Like, can you rake the leaves or something and we'll, like, feed you and give you a meal, right? So, like, they're really using the cafe as a way of giving back to, like, the community, right? And not just, like, their immediate community, but, like, the black community and, like, the homeless people. And, like, in a way, for the homeless people especially, the cafe becomes kind of a beacon. Yeah. Like, a safe place for them. Yeah, it's it becomes, like, known far and wide as a place you can go for, like, a hot meal and, like, be safe, right? And they're going to treat you like you're a person. Yeah. Right? And we meet one of those hobos named Smokey, and uh, Iggy calls him Smokey Lonesome. And he's a tramp, right? He's riding the rails. He comes and gets a hot meal at the Whistle Stop Cafe. And there's a scene where Iggy, like, sees that he's shaking, right? Because he is addicted to alcohol um, and ends up giving him alcohol because 
If you don't withdraw correctly from alcohol, you can literally die. Yeah, you'll die. Um, So she's helping him and just like kind of jokes with him, tells him that story about the ducks and the pond, right? <laughs> yeah. um, which we hear a lot, maybe too much like in the movie. Th- at least three times Maybe in the film. even four. I, possibly. <laughs> too many times. Too many times in the movie. There are other stories that Iggy tells in the book. But just kind of her making her him feel like a person. And the two of them end up kind of... As almost like buddies, right? He's around a lot. Yeah, Smokey Lonesome kind of becomes like a recurring character. He's another character where, I don't know, the train riding tramp hobo is kind of a cliche, right, from this time period, right? Like a guy just riding the rails with a stick and a rag tied around it with his clothes in it. Yeah. And and you you can get that vibe a little bit, but there's actually a chapter where he goes to Chicago And they talk about him living in, like, a Hooverville, but then, like, people raiding the camp. And, like, a young boy, he was, like, not super young and it wasn't creepy, but, like, a young man that he was with gets, like, murdered by this, like, mob. Yeah. And that was another chapter that, like the chapters about, like, the black characters in this story, just really expands the world of this story and this time period and what it really means to, like, be in this community. Yeah. So I think we get even more perspective through Smokey's character as well in this novel. Yeah. Uh, Getting back to Evelyn's story in uh, the 80s, Evelyn has is having a tough time right now. She has an incident where she's at the supermarket and this young boy just like bumps into her and then like really insults her, calls her like fat, calls her a whore, like it's just so awful to her. And this is just, like, really devastating for it, her. It's so sad because she, like, kind of tries to, like, stand up to him and is like, hey, like, you know, this was an accident. Like, you don't have to be such a jerk. In the book, he actually, like, throws her to the ground. Yeah. And and just calls her, like, every name in the book and, like, takes off. And this is just, like, so devastating to Evelyn. And I want to read a part here because I thought it was just so good. What was this power, this insidious threat, this invisible gun to her head that controlled her life? The terror of being called names. She had stayed a virgin so she wouldn't be called a tramp or a slut. Had married so she wouldn't be called an old maid. Faked orgasms so she wouldn't be called frigid. Had children so she wouldn't be called barren. Had not been a feminist because she didn't want to be called queer or a man-hater. Never nagged or raised her voice so she wouldn't be called a bitch. She had done all that, yet still this stranger had dragged her into the gutter with the names that men called women when they were angry. It's so good. This, like, revelation. And and I love there's a line, like, shortly after, too, where it was, like, uh, she was, like, 20 years later than most women, but Evelyn Couch was mad. <laughs> but, like, kind of this epiphany, right? Like, she's, she's done in her mind everything right. She's done everything she can to basically please men. Yeah. And yet it's never going to be enough. It's never enough. Yeah. And she's realizing that she can't live afraid anymore. And, you know, she has this kind of alter ego that she adopts, Tawanda the Avenger, where she's suddenly like, oh, as Tawanda, I have these fantasies of, like, shooting up pedophiles. Machine gunning the genitals <laughs> off of pedophiles. Yes, very specific. She kind of goes on and on. Some of the things she says, I'm like, okay, that would be good. Some of them I'm like, uh, I think you're a little misguided she here. She talks about like blowing up Playboy. And I'm yeah. like, Playboy isn't like a great thing, <laughs> but also maybe not don't like send them a pipe bomb. Yeah, she has a road rage incident where she ends up like, destroying these young ladies' car because she's mad about the parking space. Yes. 
this is kind of the the perspective of this is a little different between book and movie. I think in the book this is depicted as it's an epiphany for Evelyn, but it's also a bit of a low point. Or it's an awakening, but maybe misguided, right? She's, like, so angry and doesn't even know what to do with this anger, right? Yeah. And Ninny is actually, like, really worried about her. The I think the movie frames this a little bit more in a positive sense. That more this is, as, like, empowerment. I- empowerment, exactly. So, like, kind of, like, the same plot line going on, but slightly different takes on it I'd say yeah and Evelyn is also going through menopause and she kind of confesses to Ninny like her symptoms and Ninny's like oh you're just going through the change right like <laughs> I went through it you know it's fine she's like just get on some hormones yeah you'll be okay trust me <laughs> and they like tell all these like funny stories and examples of like women going through menopause like doing like crazy stuff. crazy shit because like just they're like hormonally imbalanced but like it's obviously a very real thing yeah and it's really hard on a lot of women in in various ways right like physically emotionally psychologically there's a lot going on there i think it really is interesting to see evelyn go through this um yeah let's get back to whistle stop yes and let's talk about i I don't know the the kkk yes uh good old boys As they're referred to in the movie, which I do not agree with. It's very interesting. The book kind of talks about how Whistle Stop has their own version of the KKK. And the Whistle Stop version of the KKK is portrayed as very harmless. It's like, oh, a few of the community members, they're at first a little bit mad about Ruth and Iggy selling food to black folks out the back door. And then Ruth kind of talks to Grady, the sheriff, who is a member of this local Whistle Stop group. And is like, it's fine. We're selling out the back. Like, don't be upset about it. Like, get over it. And Grady's like, okay, I'll talk to the boys. Like, okay. Like, Grady's kind of a pushover. So, like, their role is diminished slightly. And, like, I'm sure at the time some sects of the KKK were probably more threatening than others. Yeah. But to just be like, oh, they're just kind of a harmless. Yeah. It really minimizes, like, the actual harm that they did. Yeah, because we don't really ever see a group. Like, I guess the group that comes from Georgia is supposed to be, like, maybe the more threatening iteration of that. But we don't ever actually really see that. Not that I, I want to have a, a KKK no. like, lynching scene No, and I mean, you have to kind of mention the KKK if you're talking about being in the South at this time. But, yeah, I think this this book kind of, and the movie, too glosses over like oh these like nice people in the town are also kkk members right yeah i mean to be fair i think the book strikes a lot of nuance in a lot of other areas like concerning race and like living in the south at this time uh i just don't think this was an area that like it necessarily like hit the mark on totally agree on that yeah but like we said a different KKK version comes to town from Georgia, and Frank is actually among them. And when they're in Whistle Stop, they end up kind of seeing Ruth and the baby, and so Frank kind of knows that Ruth has a child now. There's, there's a great part, and it's like kind of a callback. Izzy in the book is talking to Grady about, like, I know you're a member because I know your shoes. Like, you all wear your normal shoes even though you're, like, covered in, like, sheets Right. And in the book, when Ruth is seeing this KKK group, she notices uh, 
her ex-husband Frank's shoes. Yeah. And it's mentioned in the book how he polishes his shoes, right? So mm-hmm. just a great callback to the shoes and Ruth knowing that Frank is there with them. Yeah. In the book, they kind of like threaten Iggy and Ruth a bit and then the local KKK kind of routes them and is like, get hey, out of here. This is our This town. is our territory. Um, but in the movie, they really kind of start some trouble like there's a rock thrown through the cafe they get big george and start like whipping him this was so i'm like what's happening i know like because it's like 20 feet from the cafe and it was so weird because we see them whipping him and then it cuts to the cafe with Iggy inside and someone's like oh they've got big george and she's like oh no and she runs out and it's like right <laughs> like, it's right there it's right there they have like torches out yeah and i'm like where how do they get him where did they find him why did they target have him? you not seen like yeah usually they're a little bit more like oh we'll like take this like somewhere else yeah right? yeah and yeah it was just very and like i don't know like, why specifically they were targeting Big George? Like, not that the KKK need a reason, but also, like, why him? It just felt, like, very kind of shoehorned into the plot. I guess it's it's, a, it's an anti-version of our complaint with the book that isn't depicting it well enough, where yeah. this is like, okay, we're going to show you, but I'm like, all right. Do, it, do we need this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can't be pleased, Adina. <laughs> we do have... um frank in the movie like specifically trying to take the baby and then he leaves because like smoky kind of threatens him this doesn't happen in the book we just have like the scene of like ruth noticing his shoes right um but we do know that frank comes back the movie kind of plays out like a scene of what happens when frank comes back but the book really kind of hides this and waits to deliver this information so we're gonna also kind of wait to talk about it But we do find out that Frank goes missing and there are some detectives looking for him that come over to Whistle Stop, talk to Ruth and Iggy, talk to some others in the town and are actively seeking Frank. Yeah. And we don't know what happened to Frank. We don't know who knows what. We just know that detectives are around like questioning people. Mm -hmm. Taking another little interlude here. Let's talk about Artis and Jasper, the twins of Big George and Anzal again. Um, We already mentioned that Artis goes to Birmingham and is kind of like living it up in Slagtown, right? And he is like this huge ladies man. And we get all these little anecdotes about like him sleeping with all these women he shouldn't, getting into scrapes. (laughs) There's a whole situation where he has to like flee to Chicago because this woman's trying to kill him. It's this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, We also get, like, a whole story with him. And, like, there's a lot of stories like this in the book where they almost play out, like, short stories, which is really great. Where, like, Artis is living in this, like, neighborhood and there's kind of a stray dog, but it belongs to a man and dog catchers come and are trying to take the dog away. And he's like, no, don't. Like, that's my neighbor's. Like, please let me call him. Like, hold on. And he has, he has to run to a pay phone. <laughs> and it honestly, it read like a bad dream, like a... a a stress stream or like you have to make a call, but you don't have like, you can't find the number. You don't know the number. And like, he, he ends up rushing back and the men are going to take the dog away. And he's like, I'm sorry, I can't let you do that. And he pulls out a knife and cuts the rope that the dog's attached to. So the dog can flee. And then they arrest him for pulling a knife on to like public workers. Yeah. And he's going to get like 10 years in prison, <laughs> but luckily Iggy and Grady, Grady 
are able the to- The sheriff. The yeah. sheriff, the KKK sheriff, <laughs> heart of gold, um, <laughs> uh, pull some strings to like get him out only after like a, like a month or so. Yeah. And then we have Artis's twin brother, Jasper, which it's interesting when we didn't mention- um, even though they're twins, Artis is a lot darker than Jasper. Jasper's really light-skinned. And I think the book really interestingly tackles colorism in the Black community and kind of the different experiences, depending on, like, what you looked like. Even though you were Black, you could still have very different experiences. Yes. And Jasper, who is light-skinned, ends up working for the railroad, which is kind of, like, a really good and respectable job. He marries another light-skinned um, African-American woman and they have like light-skinned children. He's kind of a respected member of his community and just kind of showing like that they had different lives. Not necessarily that one was better than the other, but that they were just different, right? Yeah, and I really love too because like there's a really great part in the book where like there's a newsletter from the railroad about Jasper being named like employee of the month. And then the next chapter is, like, Jasper's perspective and, like, all the shit he's had to deal with. Yeah, from white people on the train. Yes, and always having to have a smile and, like, do everything he can. And even, like, his own children, or maybe it's his grandchildren, being embarrassed by him for being, like, overly polite to white people, right? Almost like an Uncle Tom kind of caricature. Yeah. And so, like, and he's almost, like, annoyed or jealous of his uh, brother Artis, Who's, like, living it up in, like, the black community, right? Like, just sleeping around with women. And he's like, oh, I've had to work all my life. So, like, showing that they each had different struggles. Yeah. And I think this is brought together so perfectly because Jasper's uh, daughter goes to a department store. And she is light-skinned enough that she's passing for white. Mm -hmm. So she's in this department store to buy perfume. And Artis is actually there. And we said Artis is much darker in complexion. And he sees her, and even though he doesn't know her that well, he goes up to her, and he, like, kind of puts his hand on her shoulder, and is like, oh my god, are you Jasper's daughter? Yeah. And the woman selling the perfume freaks out, and she's like, let go of her, because yeah. he thinks he's grabbing a white girl. Mm-hmm. And they end up throwing Artis out, like, because she won't admit, oh, that's my uncle. Yeah. They throw Artis out, and it's, like, such a sad and devastating scene, but just shows, like, even within the black community, like, the different experiences you can have because of your complexion. Yeah, you know, this really reminded me of this book that I really love called The Vanishing Half, that is actually also about twins, but kind of about how if you can pass for white, like, what kind of life that is. Yeah. And I think this is a really nuanced portrayal of you know the black experience especially with the colorism by a white woman and so i don't want to say like oh we should give her like all kinds of awards for this but i really do think like it's well thought out and well portrayed here overall yeah like her depiction of like the black characters and their lives and really like highlighting them separately from like the white characters as being like their own people with own experiences i was like so surprised about in this book and it's done like I think really, really well for the most part. Yeah. Uh, however, and unfortunately, the movie just really forgets all of this. And to be fair, this is a movie yeah. that had to trim down a lot from this book. Like, it cut a lot overall. But it is sad that, like, the really nuanced and interesting perspective of the Black characters was probably the biggest victim of this. And they fall into that kind of trope that I was worried about the book to begin with, which is just like, 
oh, the black characters who are very friendly and serve the white family. And yes, the white family cares about them like they're their own family, but they're not really people. They're or not characters. their own individuals. No. And so the movie kind of really ends up reducing them down to those kind of tropes that we're familiar with to begin with. Totally agree with that, which is unfortunate. Um, so getting back into the story. Of getting the- back to the white characters. <laughs> to the story um so ruth and iggy's boy buddy jr grows up and unfortunately shares a similar fate to his namesake buddy <laughs> did they curse him i when know they named him right buddy jr. he also gets hit by a train but luckily all he loses in in the deal is his arm um so they call him stump now i loved the fake out in the film that yes. they did and it's true to the book they have like a funeral for his arm where they <laughs> bury it uh and in the movie they kind of cut to this funeral and a gravestone that says like buddy jr and then it pans down to say his arm yeah <laughs> which i thought was a really fun way to like take what's there in the book and kind of make a a joke slash twist out of it. For sure. I love that they did this. Yeah. But like, despite Stump's, you know, injury, Iggy really kind of like takes him under her wing and really like inspires him to like not let this stop him. And in fact, he becomes like a star football player. He's like a uh, expert marksman, right? Like he really does a lot with his life and kind of owes a lot of that to Iggy and the support she gave him. Yeah, in fact, she's the one who first started calling him Stump, which fits so well with her character that she would do this because she's so chaotic, but is like, let's get ahead of this. Like, people are going to make fun of you or people are going to point it out, so let's just call you Stump. Yeah. (laughs) It's great. Should we get back to kind of like the big... I'd say, like, top-tier, S-tier plotline of the story. (laughs) Which is the murder trial. The murder trial, the disappearance of Frank. So they uncover his car nearby. uh, In the river. In the river, nearby the town. So you know he died in Whistle Stop. And clearly, because he wasn't found, someone, like, covered up the body, right? Yeah, and there are witnesses that know that Iggy and Big George threatened Frank when they picked up Ruth. And so they arrest Ruth and, or not Ruth, they arrest <laughs> Iggy and Big George. Um, it's really interesting, actually, because in the book at this time, Ruth has passed away. Yes. But in the movie, we have Ruth alive here and actually testifying in this trial. But we have, you know, Ruth, or, sorry. <laughs> we have Iggy on the stand just antagonizing the lawyer here, Crack, right? Cracking jokes. It's great. Yeah, just really like being aggressive. I love the one line where he's like, and then you took this man's wife and child away. And she was like, oh, no, it was just the wife. Uh, the baby came later. And he was like, how much later? She's like, you know, the usual time, nine months. <laughs> And, like, the jury's laughing with her. Yeah. And also, when he, like, calls Big George the N-word, she, like, loses it. And, like, so I, I like it. She's kind of also losing, like, sympathy, too. Like, it's kind of a balancing act. But Ruth does go on on the stand. In the movie. In the film. And <laughs> the the lawyer asks her, like, why did you leave your husband for this woman? Did she entice <laughs> you? Did she promise you alcohol and, and all this other stuff? Why? Why would you possibly live with a, a woman? And Ruth says, because she's my best friend. And they were gal pals. <laughs> <laughs> they were friends. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's really disappointing. And I like I don't see a reason for this scene no. to exist. This doesn't even exist in the book, right? She's not even at this trial in the book. And like I don't know why I just it's very frustrating. Like it's supposed to be this emotional moment. Like if they are a queer couple, this is when she should tell everyone, right? If she is going through some kind of like arc, but instead she's just kind of confirming the narrative that the movie is already feeding us. So why have it at all? We, exactly. Yeah. I don't like it's not an epiphany. We already know that they're close. The only thing you could reveal to us is that you're gay. Yeah. And that you're banging edgy. Cowards. <laughs> I know. It's God. Disappointing. Yeah. Um, we have a star witness, though, that shows up, which is the Reverend Scroggins. And we haven't mentioned him yet, but Iggy has like a personal vendetta against him and has been antagonizing him her whole life, basically. It's so funny because we know that she's been antagonizing him. Like if people show up to the cafe looking for booze, she'll be like, oh, there's a guy who sells it. He's over. And she just like <laughs> gives them the Reverend's like address. And she's like constantly sending people over there. And we don't know why until much later in the book when we find out in a sermon, he like publicly called out a woman who Iggy is close with for being uh, loose, let's mm-hmm. say. And Iggy took that really personally. And ever since she's been like having this personal vendetta against him. Yeah, but in the book, we also find out that the Reverend Scroggin- Scroggins' <laughs> son was in a scrape and Iggy actually got him out of it, right? He was going to go to prison and she helped him. She gave him like a ton of money. Yeah. And was also like, don't you tell anybody I did this. <laughs> so the Reverend showing up for her like this was, you know, as a way of paying her back. Mm-hmm. He shows up and gives uh, Iggy an alibi because she really doesn't have one at this time for where she was when Frank was murdered or went missing, right? And Reverend Scroggins is like, uh, Sister Threadgood was at our revival meeting, and so was her hired hand, Big George. They always serve refreshments at our revival. And it lasts exactly three days, the exact amount of time that is unaccounted for. <laughs> and I love, too, that like he brought his own Bible to swear on, but it was actually a copy of Moby Dick. <laughs> yes. Also, interesting detail from the book, or details, I guess. They bring uh, the congregation to testify as well. Oh my well, God, yes. Which is like a bunch of the hobos that they've helped over yeah. the years. And then also the judge who's presiding over the case is a man whose daughter was like knocked up by Frank and like left to be in poverty. And he like hates Frank. And he's literally like, I knew that he was not even swearing on a Bible, and I also knew that this whole congregation were a bunch of hobos, but I don't give a fuck about Frank, so I'm just going to dismiss this whole case. Well, there's a similar thing in the book, too, where one of the- That's what I said in the book. No, I'm sorry, but the detective in the book- Oh, yeah. That's the judge. Oh, he's the judge. Oh, that's right, because this is like years later. Yeah. I forgot that that was the same character. Okay, yeah, he's thank been you. promoted to judge now. Okay, I thought it was like the brother who was the detective of the girl. <laughs> okay, yeah, so that that's kind of great. Like the the justice of like fuck this guy yeah. who was murdered. I don't care. <laughs> I also like in the movie where the judge says like I don't give a goddamn. <laughs> <laughs> the judge, a good goddamn. A good goddamn. The judge just goes off in the film, and we don't even have the context in the film of like why he cares. He's just like, if a reverend says it's true, I don't care. <laughs> but basically, R- R- Iggy and Big George are acquitted. They do not get charged for this murder. It's funny because like this is an, a significant 
point in the book, but it's also just kind of like a little side story. Yeah, it's really a big part of the movie. I mean, but I, I get the movie wanting to like kind of like tie a lot of the narrative to like one thing that's especially enticing like oh a murder and did she do it or didn't she right like it makes sense why you would do that i mean opening the opening shot being the truck coming out of the river the car yeah so i understand that but it is just funny to compare it to the book where it's just kind of like a thing that kind of comes and goes like it's big and definitely something that people remember from the book but like honestly in terms of page count is not that big no um unfortunately though we mentioned this already ruth does die She has some kind of ovarian or uterine cancer, and at the time, there really wasn't much they could do. So when they find out that she has the cancer, she declines pretty quickly. I really love the way the book kind of brought this up, because once again, Ninny is just telling this story, right? And she just kind of like drops this little tidbit, right? It's like, oh, yeah, you know, after Ruth died and Evelyn's like, wait, what do you when did Ruth die? Oh, she had oh, she had cancer. And it was like really sad, like just kind of like how you would tell the story. Yeah. Like after the the passage of time and it's just kind of like something that happened. Right. But like to you, it's devastating for it to be just kind of like mentioned this way. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot to say other than, like, it's really sad. We get a scene of Iggy saying goodbye, and she tells the duck story again. Uh, tell a different story, <laughs> Iggy. <laughs> there's others. This is definitely the third time we've heard this story already. Yeah. And I think if we hadn't done the second time where she tells Smokey, then it would have worked better. But you're just like, I've heard this story two times already. <laughs> Do something different. Yeah, especially when you're... Uh, BFF is dying. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I do like the way this shot played out, though, because Iggy is kind of telling the story and kind of like wandering into the background, into a different room as she's telling it. And the longer it lingered, because you can see Ruth in bed. And as she's telling the story and it keeps lingering, I was like, oh, my God, Ruth died. Yeah. Like you kind of realize before, as you're watching. Yeah, that before Iggy and just the fact that the frame holds that long kind of gives you that information, which I thought was, like, really effective. Mm -hmm. It's very sad. And, you know, after some time, the town actually starts drying up in the way that a lot of small towns do. The railroad stops running through as often. Um, Eventually, the Whistle Stop Cafe closes down. People move away. And, you know, Ninny is kind of telling this and just being like, yeah, it it was it was thriving at one time and now it's kind of gone and it's a little bit sad. It is sad. And like you've spent so much time in this town with these characters, like it really feels really significant. We also get in the book a lot of uh, kind of separate little asides of like various characters dying. You know, we find out Smokey at one point returned to Whistle Stop to visit Ruth's grave because he was like secretly in love with her for years, which was like yeah. very sad. And it cuts to a news bulletin that it's just like local man found frozen to death outside. Mm-hmm. All that was found on him was like a single photograph, which we know is Ruth. Yeah. So like, I, I don't know, like the way the story is told is like, so there's a real melancholy to the book. Yeah. And I think the movie tries to capture it to a degree and semi successfully. But like, I don't know, just watching not only the town kind of dry up, but also, like, the people start to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see artists in a kind of a nursing home. And yeah. he's just kind of, like, lost his mind. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. we witness his death. And, like, I don't know. It's just, um, it feels very poignant, but also just very, very sad. Yeah, especially with kind of getting to the end of the story. 
And in the present, you know, Evelyn is kind of completing her arc here where she was going through probably like the stages of grief, right? She had her anger phase, like yes. denial, whatever. And now she's kind of more into acceptance and kind of like creating a new life for herself. Um, she starts selling Mary Kay cosmetics, which, which Ninny told her to do. Also, it just feels so appropriate for her as a character. And like in the 80s, and right? In the, you're like, she would sell Mary Kay. Yeah. Like that is, <laughs> also apparently I read Fanny Flagg was friends with the woman who started Mary Kay. Oh my God. She's like writing in like an ad for this <laughs> MLM, of, right? But it's also aged well to the, not necessarily, but like it makes sense. Like it's believable, right? Yeah. In the book, she also goes to a fat camp spa. Yeah. I don't love this. I don't either. You know, Evelyn has been struggling with her weight all this, the whole story, like both in book and movie. And this is such a, a a tricky topic too, because like, if you're feeling like really like down or depressed or like struggling with your self image, like exercise can be a great tool, right? Like yeah. physical activity can really help eating you. healthy, eating right. healthier. Yeah. But like, the goal shouldn't be to lose weight. Like, that might be a byproduct. But, like, doing things like crazy diets or, like, even going to, like, some kind of fat camp program, like, I don't know. Like, a lot I of that know, stuff isn't sustainable. It's portrayed as really positive in the book, but I don't know if it really is, like, overall in real life, so. I think more of a self-acceptance angle would have been better, right? I mean, especially for a woman who's, like, in her, like, mid-40s, like... Like, it can be really difficult and maybe even unrealistic to, like, want to, like, really slim down at that age. Yeah. Like, not that you can't, but, like, I I don't know. I think it maybe would have been more impactful to her to be like, you know what? My body's changed over the years. And as long as I'm eating healthy and, like, feel good, that's what matters. Yeah. Yeah. I wish that would have been a little bit better. Should we get to the murder, Ian? <laughs> We've delayed it for so long. We had the trial for it. But we didn't mention the murder scene. We still don't know what happened. We do know that Frank showed up back in town to take his son back. And then went missing. And then went missing. So we discover the truth here. And let's maybe talk about the book version specifically, you know. Sure. He he shows up and Sipsy is watching. Not He's not Stump. He's... Buddy. Buddy. <laughs> I'm like, he's not Stump yet. He has, <laughs> he's a baby. He hasn't lost the arm yet. Uh, she's watching Buddy when Frank shows up. And he, like, hits her with his gun, knocks Sipsy out, and takes the baby. And he's getting to his car when suddenly he hears something, which is his own skull getting crushed from behind. And yes. he falls over. Yes. Uh, Sipsy has hit him over the head with a frying pan and <laughs> killed him instantly. Like, she got knocked out. Yeah. And she got right back up. She grabbed a frying pan <laughs> and she just caved his skull in. And then she says something like, Ain't nobody taking this baby. No, she's like muttering to herself <laughs> yeah. as she walks back. Like her grandson artist is there like watching this. Yes. And is just like, what the fuck? Like it honestly plays so comedically in the book in such an effective way. Because like you were not expecting Sipsy to be the one who killed him. No. And also for her to just be so like. She's just, like, annoyed about it. Yeah. Like, she's just like, ain't nobody taking this baby while I'm alive. As she, yeah. like, walks back to the house after just murdering a man. And, like, Artis goes and gets his dad. And Big George show, shows up. And then they're, like, having to, like, you know, figure out what to do with the body. But interestingly, in the book, Ruth and Iggy are not there and are never told to our knowledge about what happened. Which is 
wild. So I, like, even when Ruth is on trial, she has no idea what even happened to Frank. You mean Iggy? Or sorry, Iggy. Why do I keep doing that? <laughs> you're, you're doing I'm me. Doing, I'm doing you. I'm Ian. usually the one who gets the names mixed up. <laughs> even constantly. when Iggy is on trial in the book, she has no idea what actually happened. To you Frank. think she's like protecting, and she is protecting George. Yeah, because she knows, like, if it's just George defending himself, like they'll probably hang him because he's a black man. Uh, so like you do know she's doing it for that reason, but like, oh, she actually doesn't know what happened. So they, uh, big George shows up and they're like, what are we going to do with this body? And they're like, well, let's cook him into barbecue. (laughs) And this is the thing that many people remember this story for. And it was the thing that like, you kind of like mentioned to me a while back about the book where you're, you're like, oh yeah, it's about this like. Uh, this queer couple that runs a cafe and also a man is murdered and like fed to people. And I'm like, what? What? (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, Big George cooks him into barbecue and it's kind of unclear who consumes the body. Yeah. Like, especially because Ruth and Iggy in the book didn't even know. Did they eat him? I don't know. I don't know, Ian. Did the whole town eat him? Yeah. The movie is different because we see... That scene of him getting hit over the head, but we don't know who did it. And then when we see it again one last time, we see that Sipsy did it. We see Smokey trying to defend the baby in this scene as well in the movie. And then we also see Iggy knowing about it. And then we see Sipsy telling the black people to not eat barbecue that day. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So the idea was Iggy's actually to cook him into barbecue. And they feed him specifically to the detective detective who's like there to try to find him. So it seems like maybe all the cannibalism was done by. I mean, it had to be more than the detective. Yeah, there's a lot of meat, Ian. Yeah. (laughs) It would take a lot of people to consume a whole body, right? Yeah. Also, what did they do with the skeleton and the organs and There's a lot of questions. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, that's what happened, essentially, in both versions of Frank. They eat him up. (laughs) They eat him up. (laughs) Secrets in the sauce, Ian. (laughs) (laughs) I like, though, in the film, how when Evelyn is told this story, she's like, she laughs and she's like, that's not true. Did is that it? really happen? And then he is like, I don't know. Because I, I kind of like that uncertainty. About, like, is this a tall tale? Yes. Is this being like exaggerated or embellished or like, is this all made up? Right. I kind of I think that ambiguity helps a little bit. And I almost wish the book had kept that because in the book, it thematically it ties in so well. Like, Iggy's constantly telling tall tales. Yeah. Like Other people are t- telling tall tales. But like. It's told from a third person kind of like, like the perspective is kind of like the truth in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would have been more interesting if you're like, did they? But you're like, they did. <laughs> they really did. They absolutely <laughs> did. And who ate him? God we o- don't know. God only knows. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not his own son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk here about the book ending. Yes. So Evelyn, when she's away... At fat camp, uh, making friends, is told uh, via letter that Ninny died. Yeah. And so she kind of like rushes back and, you know, she she visits her grave. Yeah. She gets a lot of her stuff. Ninny leaves her some things. She specifically gives her uh, recipes from the Whistle Stop Cafe. And in fact, the book kind of gives you recipes at the back, which I really like. Yeah. Kind of being uh, immersing you even more in this environment. 
she does visit the, c- the cemetery to see Nini's grave and put some flowers there. And she notices when she's there that on Ruth's grave, there's a jar of honey. Yeah. And, and a, a, a little letter. note. Yeah. And I love this because, you know, we've been told about the fates of so many characters up until this point. But kind of around this point, I'm like, wait, we don't know what happened to Iggy. And then you're like, oh, my God, like, she's still alive. And then in the book, we cut to a different scene in Florida, right? Yeah. Of a little, like, roadside stand that's just kind of selling produce and other things. And, like, a family stopping there. And an old man who approaches them. But, oh, actually, it's an old woman Mm -hmm. in overalls, right? (laughs) And we quickly realize that this is Iggy. She starts telling... Like, all her jokes. I think she tells the duck story again here. Yeah. Which, this is only the second time in the book we've heard this story. So I thought this worked really well, uh, as opposed to the film. But, yeah. And, you know, she gives, like, a little girl a jar of honey and sends them off. And it's, like, it's such a sweet ending to the story that despite, like, the town collapsing and, like, all these other people dying and Ruth dying, the Iggy is still kind of, like... Just kind of on her own doing her yeah, own thing. Yeah. And that she obviously hasn't forgotten about Ruth or how important she was. And it's just a really, a really touching ending. Like I was like really tearing up by the end of this book. I know, it's really sweet. I think it's a perfect kind of send-off for this story. It's perfectly like bittersweet. Yes. Right? Like it's not like, oh, super happy that Iggy's still around. Like she's still an old woman and a lot of people have died, and it's like kind of the sad passage of time. But, and the town's gone. And the you town's know. gone. But there's still like that sweet kind of sentimental quality to it. Mm-hmm. And Iggy is still Iggy, right? Yes. She's still telling her stories, charming people, right? Like uh, some things live on. In the movie, though, Nini does not die. We have a fake out. <laughs> a fake out death, which I thought was like, it, it worked, but it maybe could have been worked better. The, the fake out is that she shows up and they're clearing out Nini's room and they're like, oh, the woman in this room died. And she's like, what? And is freaking out only to discover that her friend, Mrs. Otis, who we've never seen. No, we've never met. Died. And that Nini actually just left. Which I'm like, why wouldn't the nurse clarify what happened? Yeah. We've never seen Mrs. Otis. Like, it was kind of a clunky twist. Yeah. And we found out earlier in the movie that uh, Nini's house was demolished. But they don't tell Nini about it. Which I don't, I don't understand this. Yeah. So then she leaves and goes to go back to her house. And Evelyn's like, oh, no, I have to go get her because her house is destroyed. So they go to Whistle Stop and Nini's just sitting in the road being like, where's my house? <laughs> like, and she's like, am I crazy? Like, she was still living there. But they're like, her house was condemned. I'm like, how long has she been at the nursing home? Because I'm like, she wasn't crazy like she was only staying there for a short amount of time yeah just a weird it's it's odd it's very strange evelyn does offer she's like please live with me like i love you you're so important to me you really changed my life i want you to live with me and it kind of seems like that's gonna be what's gonna happen yeah and so they're gonna leave and then you know they're in whistle stop or what remains of whistle stop and as they're passing the cemetery they notice a jar of honey and a note on Ruth's grave. And this is like, oh, the reveal that Iggy is still alive. And Evelyn is like, wait, Iggy is... How does it even specifically... She says something like... Iggy's still around? Where is she? And then Ninny's like, oh, she's around. And, you know, you never know when you'll see her. And then Evelyn's like, maybe we'll see her today. Gives a very knowing look to Ninny. Is like, oh, maybe we'll see... Yeah. And, you know, it's like, ooh. Ooh. And... 
you and I had the same thought. We're like, is is Ninny supposed to be itchy? Yeah, I don't know. And if it is, that's really bizarre. But here's the thing. And I think the directors and other people have like stated that she's not right. Because first of all, in the film, and this is in the book too, Ninny tells the story. I mean, first of all, she explains marrying Cleo, the older brother, right? Which is a detail you could lie about and it wouldn't be a big deal, right? But then she talks about specifically too in the film having uh, a son who was mentally disabled and having to like take care of him all his life until he died at the age of 30. That'd be a really weird thing to make up. That would be so (laughs) fucked up to make up that entire story, right? I mean, I guess you could maybe Iggy remarried, but then she's lying about marrying her own older brother. Yeah, it's just really messy. Like, I don't actually think... That's what they were trying to say with this ending. But it's confusing. It is. It really feels like that's what they want you to think in that moment. Yeah. I don't think it's handled well. No, it's not. Uh, I think we did it, Ian. Have we? I I think so, too. There's a couple subplots we'll talk about in uh, in, In in Lightning Round because it was hard to fit everything into this discussion. Yeah. But which, one, which one's better, though? Which uh, I feel very confident in saying that I think the book is better. I mean, for the queer plot alone. Alone. We have to go with the book. And also for the black representation in the book as well. Absolutely. I mean, this book is so rich. It's so detailed. It's really cool and interesting. I'm so glad I read it, honestly. This was such a, like, a surprise read for me. Like, not that I, I had no expectations going into it, right? But I was just so shocked by, like, how f- it's so funny like it the, the book is just so funny and i love how it really tells the story in a way that takes advantage of its written medium like all of the dot weems yes. inserts and then all the other like news bulletins and the kind of disjointed way that it tells the story like it's so unique to the written version of the story right yeah and it's so, I don't know, it's just very touching and wholesome and hilarious. And I thought the book was fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, I really do love the performances of the actors in the movie. Yeah. I think that's really well done. But I mean, you just can't compare something that's been so stripped, right? Yeah. And I I also felt like the movie, in a lot of ways, ended up feeling kind of hokey. It's very sentimental. Yes. And... Like, it really is leveraging that sentimental quality. And I get why people like this movie. And not that the book isn't sentimental, but there's a lot more going on in the book. Like, there's so much, there's so many levels deeper that the book goes with it. Whereas, like, the movie just feels so surface level. Absolutely agree with that. So it's going to be book for both of us. Yeah. I just want to read Rhea's thoughts on the adaptation. So Rhea says... I was a teenager when my mom and I discovered Fried Green Tomatoes film at the local video store. We watched it and both absolutely fell in love with it. The next time my mom was out shopping, she bought the DVD and we watched it regularly throughout the following years. Obviously, I thought Mary Stuart Masterson as Iggy was just the coolest woman ever. And obviously, Tawanda is the best battle cry ever. (laughs) It wasn't until I watched the film again in my 20s that I realized that Iggy and Ruth were in love. Which is way more obvious in the book. I'd never read the book until earlier this year. I picked it up at a charity book swap, cracked it open, and was immediately obvious how wonderfully gay it is. The book and the characters don't hide it. Their community just accepts it throughout the novel. Considering it was published in 1987, it's really refreshing. 
The themes around racism, female aging, and abuse are, unfortunately, still hugely relevant today. Also, all the food sounds delicious. <laughs> I'd love a fried green tomatoes and Studio Ghibli food crossover. <laughs> Ghibli would animate the food from the book beautifully. I haven't watched the film in a really long time, but I do recall that it celebrates the strength of women and of those on the fringes of society and is about one of my favorite themes, found family. I hope it holds up, but even if it doesn't, I'll never lose my memories of watching it with my mom. We both agreed that we're going to watch it again the next time we're together, although she wants to read the book first. Thank you for choosing Fried Green Tomatoes. It's a film and book that means so much to me, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say about it. Oh, thanks so much for that write-up, Rhea. That's so great. Yeah. And we really didn't talk about the performances much, but they are all really good. Mm -hmm. I think especially Ruth, like, especially on her deathbed scene and stuff. And obviously, Kathy Bates yes. is phenomenal as Evelyn. Mm -hmm. I think she gives such a great representation of that transformation that she takes throughout the film. Definitely. To becoming, like, empowered and strong. And also, like, the, the car ramming scene is fantastic. <laughs> Uh, see, there's a lot of great qualities to the film as well, for sure. Definitely. All right, let's do lightning round. Yeah, let's get into lightning. So our lightning rounds are going to be a little bit longer uh, for this one, because there's so much we didn't get to talk about. There's but so many subplots. I need to talk about Railroad Railroad Bill in the book. We hear about Railroad Bill, where he's like this outlaw who is throwing food and supplies off these government trains and giving them to the black community and the hobos that are in the whistle stop area and everyone's like trying to catch him. The government and the railroads are putting bounties on him. He, everybody knows he's a black man who's doing this. And the whole time I'm like, it's probably edgy, right? Uh, yes. It's definitely edgy. And we find out at some point that it is edgy and that she is putting coal dust on her face and wearing man's clothing and doing this. And like, yes, it's a good deed, but also she is blackfacing herself here, and I don't love that. I mean, I think she's just doing it to, like, be incognito at night. You know what I mean? Like, trying to dress, like, just all in black and, like, covering her face up right. I think, to me, like, the only, the main issue with it is that at some point, obviously, the town thinks it's a black man doing it. And that kind of puts the black community in danger. Yeah. Because the railroad really wants to catch this guy. And it isn't out of the realm of possibility that if they thought it was someone, they would just, like, kill him. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just, like, kind of a little squishy. And I don't love it. Yeah. There is a scene in the movie where Ruth and Iggy get into the train and start throwing supplies off into the hobo camp. Um, not in blackface. So it kind of like mirroring this uh, this plot a little bit. Yeah, I just don't think her intention was necessarily to like pass herself off as black, but it is kind of unclear, I guess. Yeah. Let's talk about Ava, who is a pretty significant character in the book who we haven't mentioned. Ava live, lives by the river. And in the book, she's actually the true love of Buddy. And the thing with Ava is she is just sexually free. And it's something we haven't really talked about with the book quite as much, but the book is actually very sex positive in a lot of ways. Like, Ava sleeps around and does what she wants, and, like, she gets made fun of in certain ways by people in the story, but, like, she doesn't care, and I think no. she's depicted in a very positive light for the most part. Yeah, she... <laughs> so she had a relationship with, you know, Iggy's older brother, Buddy, and then when Iggy is super heartbroken over Ruth, it's implied that... Eva and Iggy sleep together. Yeah. And then when Stump is feeling insecure about his stump arm and going out with girls, Iggy takes him to Eva. Yep. 
I'm like, oh, this is this is the line for me. This is actually the line. Uh, yeah, the whole <laughs> the the whole Iggy sleeping with her after she was sleeping with Buddy was weird for me. But I'm like, I mean, maybe I guess. And then Iggy is like, I mean, come on, Buddy, like, why don't you sleep with her or Buddy Junior? Yeah. Because like I slept with her and your late uncle slept <laughs> with her. It's like, why wouldn't you want to sleep with uh, her? Yeah. Weird. Uncomfortable. <laughs> also, the scene preceding this in the book was weird as well, because like Stump is being really awkward about like Iggy's questioning him about like, why aren't you like hanging out with girls? Like you should be like dating and like just having fun at your age. And like, why are you like avoiding girls? And Stump is being kind of dodgy and kind of weird. And in our minds, we're like, I mean, is he gay? Like Iggy and Ruth are gay. Like their story is very queer. And then at some point, Stump is like, I'm not weird if that's what you mean. And I'm like, excuse me, you have two moms. Yeah, what are you talking about? Yeah. And Itchy doesn't even, like, call him out on that. No. It was just a really weird scene. It's a weird scene in general, and then it ends with him going to Eva. So. I yeah, I would prefer this part not be Let's just cut it. In the book, yes. <laughs> in our version let's, of this. <laughs> let's, let's make a petition to cut this part out. Yeah. Last for lightning round, I just want to mention Naughty Bird, Big George and Anzel's daughter, who is so sick at one point in her life that she can't get up or eat anything. And all she wants to do is see Fancy the Elephant, which is at this circus or zoo nearby. But she can't go because she's sick. And also, black folks aren't allowed there. And Iggy basically beats the zookeeper or whoever's taking care of this (laughs) elephant in a poker match and bets him. And so he has to bring the elephant to Whistle Stop and... Uh, Naughty Bird is able to have her time with Fancy the Elephant and it rejuvenates her and she goes on to live a happy life. <laughs> it's like such a sweet little side story. right? I love it. There's so many little stories like that in this book that are just like so fun and kind of like almost whimsical <laughs> in a great way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those are just a few of the subplot side stories that we really liked in this book and thought were worth bringing up. Yeah. So that wraps up Lightning Round and our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Um, If you'd like to support us and have an episode that you would like to be featured, you can become a patron like Rhea and request it. And our patrons have access to all our bonus episodes and also our Discord server where we're constantly talking about episodes and books and movies and all kinds of other stuff. Yes. Uh, If you can't support us on Patreon, please consider giving us a star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other platform that allows that. It really helps us with the algorithm. Uh, You can find us on basically every social media platform, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, all those. You can find those links at our website, CoverToCredits.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.